renounce the debt. America bounced the check. And no, it ain't all about the dough, but my people still pull. Reparations is due, so just give me what you owe. No, we won't renounce the debt. America bounced the check. And no, it ain't all about the dough, but my people still pull. Reparations is due, so just give me what you owe. Capitalists are the enemy, but we get treated like the villain. When prison is homicide, cause they making a killing. And war generates more loot, so that's why Bush is going off. Half cocked like Joey Butterfuco, he don't care about jobs, it seems. So I gotta use my pen to get money like an ATM machine. The economy's at its lowest by far. So I'm the black man, gotta work hard like male porno stars. To my soldiers at A Cobra, hold your head, it's not over. Jim Crow ain't dead, he just got a little older, more colder. So we gotta be less passive, more bolder. So don't tell me what I'm wrong with a plan. Reparations, conversation, reparations, conversation, reparations. We are here. The show brought to you by Incobra, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, coming to you on the first and third Monday of each month, bringing you information around the reparations movement, current events, as well as historical analysis. Today is the one day before the Earth Day of El Haj Malik El Shabazz also known as Omawali, also known as Malcolm X. And so we thought it appropriate to honor him and his contributions to the African liberation movement and and as well as his contributions to the reparations movement. We have two guests that will be uh, navigating this conversation with me today. We have Dr. Akihele Umoja, who... African-American studies professor at Georgia State University, and I'll give you a little bit more bio of him later, as well as Dr. Errol Henderson, who also is a teacher of international relations um, professor at Pennsylvania State University. We well, let's go. What we want like to do just to get started is we want to go ahead and just give you some background information on who Malcolm X is. So we have a video clip that will lay that out, and then we'll on the other side of that video clip we'll bring our guest in to um, edify on who Malcolm X is and his contributions a little more. So you will play uh, brother uh, clip number two and uh, give a little give us a background to um, Malcolm X. Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask who yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you. How did one man go from petty criminal to becoming a global voice against racism? He's one of the most prominent Muslims in modern history, and a symbol of black liberation who has inspired generations. A gangster, a preacher, and a revolutionary, this is the extraordinary journey of Malcolm X. Malcolm X was born in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents, Earl and Louise Little, were followers of the Pan-African activist Marcus Garvey. As a result, their family was subjected to constant harassment by the Ku Klux Klan, who burned down their home when Malcolm was just four years old. The family moved to Michigan, where they were threatened by the Black Legion, an offshoot of the KKK. Four of Malcolm's uncles were also murdered by white racists. Malcolm's father died when he was six. The incident was officially ruled a streetcar accident, 
although his mother believed he had ultimately been murdered by the Black Legion. When Malcolm was 13, his mother was committed to a mental institution. Her children were split up and sent to different foster homes. Malcolm was an excellent student, but dropped out of school after a white teacher told him it was unrealistic for a young black boy to have aspirations of being a lawyer. After a few years in Michigan and Boston, he moved to Harlem at the age of 18, where he was involved in gambling, robbery, drug dealing, and pimping. At the age of 21, after committing a string of robberies with a small gang in Boston, Malcolm was arrested and sentenced to 8 to 10 years at Charlestown State Prison. Incarceration was the beginning of Malcolm's transformation. While in prison, his siblings began writing to him about the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. The Nation of Islam promoted black independence and rejected the notion of the superiority of white people. Instead, Elijah Muhammad taught his followers a form of separatism from whites, who were actually considered devils, inferior to black people who were the original inhabitants of Earth. Malcolm, initially hostile to the idea of any religion, eventually became a member of the nation. He read books constantly and began writing regularly to Elijah Muhammad. Muhammad's followers were taught to abandon their given family names as they were actually the names of former slave owners. So Malcolm Little became Malcolm X. After being paroled, Malcolm visited Elijah Muhammad in Chicago. In June the next year, he was named Assistant Minister of the Nation of Islam's Temple No. 1 in Detroit. He later established Boston's Temple No. 11 and expanded Temple No. 12 in Philadelphia. And those of you who think that you perhaps came here to hear us tell you to turn the other cheek to the brutality of the white man, I say again, you came to the wrong place. Finally, he was selected to lead Temple Number no. 7 in Harlem, where he was responsible for a huge surge in membership. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the South, and we don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the North. We teach you to obey the law. We teach you to carry yourselves in in a respectable way. But at the same time, we teach you that anyone who puts his hand on you, do your best to see that he doesn't put it on anybody else. The FBI now had him under surveillance due to his sudden profile as the nation's rising star. Malcolm's rise to national prominence happened in 1957, when he intervened at a police station to arrange for medical assistance and legal help for members of the nation who had been beaten and arrested by New York police. The crowd of protesters outside grew to almost 4,000. Witnessing Malcolm's control of the crowd shook the New York Police Department. Within weeks, they had him under surveillance and officially began infiltrating the nation. In 1958, Malcolm married his wife Betty, with whom he would have six daughters. Malcolm's profile continued to grow via print and television appearances, and he began to gain international exposure. Who is it that controls the prostitution in Harlem? It's the white man. Who controls the large sale of whiskey and wine? It's the white man. Who gives you the deck of cards and the dice that you use to gamble with? It's the white man. And after he sell them to you, he kept you with him and put you in jail for using them. He was deeply critical of the growing civil rights movement and its leaders, like Dr. Martin Luther King, who preached integration. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy. Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom. 
who was doing the same thing today. Malcolm's message was being heard louder than ever, but his relationship with the man who had transformed his life was about to fracture. Tensions were growing within the nation over the amount of attention Malcolm was receiving compared to his mentor, Elijah Muhammad. An unprovoked raid on a Nation of Islam mosque by police in Los Angeles led to one member being paralyzed and another being killed. No charges were laid against the police. The white man believes you when you go to him with that old sweet talk, because you've been sweet talking him ever since he brought you here. Stop sweet talking. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching, and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Malcolm was reportedly stunned by Elijah Muhammad's refusal to allow any form of response or retaliation for the incident. The two also disagreed over Malcolm's desire to begin working with civil rights organizations, black politicians, and other religious organizations. Then, suddenly... Here is a bulletin from CBS News. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded... Malcolm's response to the Kennedy assassination led to him being officially silenced for 90 days. Malcolm X, you were involved in a controversy some months ago with your leader. Is that over? Well, I've been, I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, yes, and, what did you say, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and, which means the same thing. In March of 1964, Malcolm publicly announced his break from the Nation of Islam. He also expressed a desire to work with other civil rights leaders, saying that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so. Then came a bombshell. Well, in reality, I never even left the Muslim movement. They put me out. And they put me out because of what I knew. And what I knew was told to me by Mr. Muhammad's son, uh, Wallace Muhammad himself. They put me out and they put him out. Who is the father of all of these various children whom you have enumerated? Uh, the first one to tell me who the father was was Wallace Muhammad and he told me that the father was Elijah Muhammad himself. One of and how many of these illegitimate children did he father with the sisters? Well, he made uh, six sisters pregnant. They all had children. Two of those six had two children. I am told that there is a seventh sister who is supposed to be in Mexico right now, and she's supposed to be having a child by him. Are you not, perhaps, afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. After splitting from the nation, Malcolm began learning the tenets and practices of Sunni Islam. He founded the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, a religious organization, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity, a non-religious group promoting Pan-Africanism. He had softened his position on Martin Luther King, who he met only once in person. And later the same year, he performed Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. This was to be yet another transformative experience for him. When I was in on the pilgrimage, I had close contact with Muslims whose skin would in America be classified as white, and with Muslims who themselves would be classified as white in America. But these particular Muslims didn't call themselves white. They looked upon themselves as human beings, as part of the human family, and therefore they looked upon all other segments of the human family as part of that same family. Well, now, uh, they had a different look or a different air or a different attitude 
than that which is uh, reflected in the uh, attitude of the man in America who calls himself white. So I said that if uh, Islam had done this, done that for them, perhaps if the white man in America would study Islam, perhaps it could do the same thing for him. After Mecca, Malcolm made two trips to Africa, meeting officials and speaking on radio and television across the continent. In Cairo, he attended the second meeting of the Organization of African Unity and met Africa's most high-profile leaders, including Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, and Ahmed Ben Bello of Algeria, who all offered him official positions in their respective governments. He met with Fidel Castro and was one of the first African-American leaders to meet the newly created Palestinian Liberation Organization and was one of the pioneers of a tradition of black Palestinian solidarity that would be continued by the Black Panther Party and the Black Lives Matter movement. A common misconception about Malcolm's philosophical evolution is that his process of turning to Sunni Islam softened his political positions. While it's true that Malcolm abandoned some of the nation's more extreme separatist positions on race, he remained a staunch black nationalist. I think what a lot of people are interested in, Malcolm, is whether this experience has made you feel that that your feelings have changed, that uh, that the animosity you have expressed in the past toward all fights. There's one the thing that I want to make clear. No matter how much respect, no matter how much uh, uh, recognition whites show toward me, as far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. If anything, Malcolm's travel had led him to globalize his perspective, seeing black liberation as something beyond the United States, and as something that was intimately tied to struggles for independence across the Third World. It has remained a domestic problem. It has remained within the jurisdiction of the United States. And it has, and as such, it has been impossible for the Afro-Americans or American Negroes to try and enlist the support of other dark-skinned uh, people who are being oppressed the world over in, in that struggle. And the only way this can be done is by internationalizing the problem. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. The Nation of Islam had not taken Malcolm's exit and public criticism of Elijah Muhammad's misconduct lightly. His family was repeatedly threatened, their car was bombed, and FBI surveillance records show that law enforcement was aware that elements within the nation were openly discussing his death. Then his house was burned down. On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm was addressing the Organization of Afro-American Unity in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom. He was shot 21 times. Three Nation of Islam members were tried and convicted of the murder, but questions remained. At the time of his death, Malcolm was under surveillance by both the NYPD and the FBI's COINTELPRO operation. For many, there is simply no doubt that one or both organizations had a hand in his assassination. Malcolm's legacy went on to be preserved in hip-hop, film, and literature. Most importantly, his own autobiography, which continues to be celebrated and was named one of the ten most influential non-fiction books of the 20th century. His politics continue to inspire generations of activism against racism and imperialism worldwide. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change, and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, 
as long as you want to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you. Malcolm's funeral was held in Harlem. Some estimate that up to 30,000 people attended. Actor and activist Ozzy Davis delivered the eulogy. Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes, extinguished now and gone from us forever. Many will ask what Harlem finds to honor in this stormy, controversial, and bold young captain. And we will smile. Many will say, turn away, away from this man, for he is not a man, but a demon, a monster, a subverter, and an enemy of the black man. And we will answer and say unto them, did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him? Or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. What we place in the ground is no more now a man, but a seed, which after the winter of discontent will come forth again to meet us. And we shall know him then for what he was and is, a prince, our own black shining prince who did not hesitate to die because he loved us so. You now use Shabazz and drop X? I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X because, and I'll probably use it as long as the situation that produced it exists. <laughs> All righty, we have got some background on Malcolm X and um, I hope that I'm going to bring in my... Um, mentor and elder and someone who's a, a scholar activist and, and who really represents um, continuing the seed that um, that was just talked about that was planted by Malcolm X and as a founding member of the New African People's Organization and as well as a founding member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement, also most noted for his book, We Will Shoot Back Armed Resistance and the Mississippi Freedom Movement. Um, someone who is a positive role model in our community, father, husband, grandfather, again, activist. We give thanks and want to bring in Dr. Akinle Moja to, uh, I guess, if there was any particular uh, thing that you felt like the, the intro about Malcolm left out or was inaccurate, please feel free to um, bring in some communication on that. I'm sorry, I had to unmute. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I was talking away. Can you hear me now? We hear you now. Okay, I apologize. Um, man, uh, so I would like to say free the land and thank you, uh, Baba Jamoke, for having me on uh, on on the eve of one of our holy days. You know the um, the birthday of 
Omawale Malik Baz, also known as Malcolm X. I can't think of anything I heard that was inaccurate in that. The only thing I like to emphasize, and a lot of people uh, miss, miss, miss that when we look at, at uh, Baba Malcolm's uh, legacy, and we always, it's always mentioned about his trip to Mecca, which was very important in his life in terms of his spiritual transformation. But his travels to Africa, the last 11 months of his life, and this is after he leaves the nation of Islam, um, much of that time is spent visiting Ghana, visiting Algeria, visiting Guinea, and much of what he emphasized in terms of Pan-Africanism, in terms of promoting the freedom of sisters in our liberation struggle, in terms of um, moving the struggle on an international stage. He really learned from his interaction with folk on the African continent during that time. And it's not only uh, folks he met in Africa, but then even in the United States, he would collaborate with people like Che Guevara of the Cuban Revolution during that time. He would he would collaborate with people like uh, Ahmed. Excuse me. He would collaborate with people like Mohammed Babu, who's a revolutionary from Tanzania, Zanzibar. So he was interacting with all these people on an international stage, and particularly in Africa, which is one of the reasons we emphasize the Omawali name he got in when he visited Nigeria from Nigerian mm-hmm. students at that time, which means a child returned home. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just want to remember that part of his political development, too. Uh, I think it's oftentimes underemphasized when we look at the story of, of, of Malcolm X. A uh, very powerful story, I think, uh, for many of us. And I talked to some um, elementary and middle school students about this last week at Colombo Academic and Cultural Institute. But, you know, one of the things that inspires us is his transformation from being a little child who's victimized, who, you know, father is killed by white supremacists, whose mother gets trapped in a, you know, uh, mental health, I uh, can't even call it industry, what it is, the industry, um, and the family is split up and victimized by the welfare system. Then he becomes criminalized, becomes Detroit Red, and then emerges from that um, as Malcolm X, who's an avenger for our people, and then, you know, really becomes more international in his scope. Um so, I, you know, he, he just um, is a, a true redemption story for our people. And Malcolm was, was not perfect, and we shouldn't look at him as, he, as, if, as if he was uh, uh, a perfect man. He's not, no, there is no perfect man. There is no perfect woman. But he transformed himself, and I think he shows a possibility of us to transform ourselves as individuals as well as as a people. And that gives us that type of hope. Um, you have us on here, and I don't want to talk too long because I, I always love hearing my brother Earl Henderson, who you're going to introduce next. But uh, this program focuses on kind.
conversation reparations. And, of course, Malcolm promoted reparations in every way. Uh, if we talk about rep, uh, restitution and compensation coming to our people, he talked about that. You know, if we talk about things like us reclaiming our African minds, like uh, Queen Mother Moore used to talk about, if we talk about things uh, like us developing the capacity so these things cannot repeat against our people and our people being rehabilitated, um, uh, Malcolm represents all those principles that international law talks about in terms of reparations. So he is one of the heroes of our reparations movement. And I'll, I'll cut it off right there because I want to hear from my brother, Errol. All right. Thank you, Bob. I can hear you. Uh, that's actually you ended at a perfect time because we're at the halfway mark where we take a break. And so on the other side of the break, we'll bring in um, Dr. Errol Henderson. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Black Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. All righty. So first I would like to thank Brother Marshall Lee, who is a board member of INCOBRA. He's a board member at large of INCOBRA in the New Orleans, Louisiana area. And when I was speaking to him about the radio show and he mentioned Dr. Errol Henderson as someone he thought would be good for us to bring on the show. And so I contacted him. We had a good dialogue. So I'm just still getting to learn this, brother. But we can share what we can share with you from his bio is Dr. Errol Anthony Henderson is Associate Professor of Political Science at Pennsylvania State University, where he teaches international relations. He earned a Ph.D. in political science at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, he has authored more than 50 scholarly publications, including five books, the latest on the black liberation struggle of the 1960s and 70s. The book is entitled, The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized. And in this recent book, The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized, examines black cultural revolution in the U.S. with a particular focus on the black power movement. And I know that he also focuses in on Malcolm X in his book and, again, some of the organizations that were influenced by Malcolm X. So, brother, I welcome you to the show, Conversation Reparations, and also ask you likewise, um, after hearing the intro of Malcolm X, is there anything that you would like to uh, correct or to emphasize or bring out about Malcolm's life that is significant? Uh, all right, brother. Uh, greetings, brother. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you fine, brother. Oh, yes, sir. Well, greetings, and thank you for the uh, invitation to it. Uh, to participate, especially with our brother uh, Akinyele Omoja. A greetings to you as well, dear brother uh, Akinyele. Um, yes, sir. No, I don't, my uh, brother. Yes, sir. 
I I don't uh, think there's any uh, major mission to uh, or minor mission to uh, to uh, to address, and I really appreciate uh, Brother Emoja's uh, elaboration on it. All right. So, again, part of the conversation, and Bob Akinyele mentioned as well, is that we we wanting to lift out particularly his his conversation around reparations. Um, we know that he, um, being influenced by the uh, Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, you know, worked um, talked a lot about uh, separation and, and why they felt that was a solution, which also does um, address um, part of reparations. As people understand, we know that the one form of uh, reparations is cessation and non-repetition. And if we're saying that, you know, the crime is continuing and the crime has continued um, to be waged on us on in, in many different forms, whether it's just through death and murder or through miseducation and uh, lack of health care and other things, that one way that can profoundly uh, stop that from going on is for us to separate and form our own nation and or go back to Africa. And it's something that uh, Malcolm X um, continued to articulate and to promote. Um, so what was some of the, what would you um, say, Brother Henderson, around that? Well, Malcolm's on the issue of reparations. The, one of the beauties of Minister Malcolm was he could talk right down to earth, like you said, and then take it uh, uh, globally, like Brother Akinyele emphasized. So I like this quote from uh, Minister Malcolm. He said, with respect to reparations, he said, if you are the son of a man and you inherit your father's estate, you have to pay off the debts that your father incurred before he died. The only reason that the present generation of white Americans are in a position of economic strength is because their fathers worked our fathers for over 400 years with no pay. Your father isn't here to pay. My father isn't here to collect. But I'm here to collect, and you're here to pay, end quote. So that's Malcolm. But then Malcolm also builds on arguments that have made. Malcolm's not, uh, uh, he focused on the domestic, international, but most black masses did. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and others, Rayford Logan and others, had, had written an appeal to the, uh, to the world in 1947, arguing uh, uh, globalizing the black liberation struggle after World War II. Uh, 1951, the Wichita genocide. Uh, Queen Mother Moore, who Malcolm invited to his Harlem to talk about reparations. I believe that's 59. So Malcolm constantly talked about both the political revolution in the United States and what he called the worldwide revolution that was going on. And he suggests a range of options. And among these options is what uh, the RNA would later talk about in the context of the four fundamental, uh, uh, the four fundamental, uh, uh, I'm blocking on it now, the four fundamental uh, uh, consequences of freedom. And one of those is to establish a, a separate black nation. But there are four, and the RNA supported all four. However, they particularly uh, supported the liberation of, the, of what would become the Republic of New Africa in the United States. Well, this derives directly from Malcolm's logic, um, and it's part of, and reparations is part of this broader uh, strategy. So what's important for me is supposed to see Malcolm's as a strategist, a theorist, as well as an active, activist and revolutionist, but he theorized it, and he said it was important to pose both a black political revolution and a culture revolution, his words. But in, uh, for example, Manny Marble's uh, uh, autobiography, he doesn't even use the term cultural revolution, where Malcolm proposed that a cultural revolution was necessary not only to unbrainwash our mind, but also to lay the basis for the cultural claims as well as the political, economic, and social claims 
for reparations and for black liberation in general. So for me, the emphasis for Malcolm is, for, for me, why does Malcolm remain a black nationalist? Because you listen to some folks, you would think that he wasn't. And what was his mm. black nationalism right up to his death? And black nationalism don't need no redundancy like internationalism. Black nationalism is the first uh, political ideology of black America in the United States. We're only here from international process. You see what I'm saying? So Malcolm appreciated that. But he understood that there was both a, 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 a struggle that was going to be domestic, that was going to take the form of political revolution, freeing what he saw in many terms as a, the, the, the black domestic colony, and also a worldwide revolution. But these are two things going on. They weren't at odds. They were to be synchronized. And Malcolm appreciated that even in the short period. Once he leaves, between Message to the Black Grassroots and his last statement on uh, February 15th at the OAU, he understands that. I'll just stop there. <laughs> okay, brother. Yes, uh, I think yeah, the, the Malcolm X bringing, emphasizing the international connection, and again, Baba Kinley also spoke about that as well, and how important that was in overall vision, and that, you know, us demanding our reparations is really a standing in human rights and international law. And he understood that and, and articulate that. Let's, um, and I appreciate the quote that you brought in. I was going to bring that quote in, so I appreciate you bringing that quote in, Dr. Anderson. Um, excerpt from a speech that Malcolm gave in, in Michigan State. If you play uh, clip number um, three, brother, and um, we can also hear Malcolm's own words and speaking on reparations. then every other black man in Mississippi has just as much right to be there. So if you're going to spend all that money and all that manpower putting one in there, why not just go in and take the criminals who are responsible for keeping the masses out and taking them down off their posts and then opening the doors to everybody? That would be a solution, but they're not going to do that. They always want to use methods that put one Negro at a time. And then they use him to turn around and tell the masses, you see, we're solving the problem, and the problem is still unsolved. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says the only way to solve the problem for the so-called Negro is complete separation. Uh, in, and I, and, can I explain it, Doctor? Sure, go right ahead. <laughs> The Honorable Duncan says, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the Honorable Brother Duncan here says, I can proceed. Uh, the number one, what Mr. Muhammad says is this, that uh, every effort on the part of the government up to now to solve this problem by bringing about a just, equitable uh, situation between whites and blacks mixed up together here in this house has failed. It has failed absolutely. So he says that since uh, you can't give the Negro justice in your house, let us leave this house and go back home. Now, at the same time that he says, let us go back home to our own people in our own homeland, the government itself is the leading uh, opposer toward any mass element of black people becoming orientated in the direction of home. They put forth the effort to, to uh, uh, stop this. So what he says is, since you can't give it to us here, mixed up in your house, and you don't want us to go home back to our own people, then the only uh, alternative is to separate the house. Give us part of this country and let us live in that part. You ask me to explain. Now, you want me to explain? You may think it's funny, but one of these days you won't. He says that in this, uh, in this section that will be set aside for black people, that the government should give us everything we need to start our own civilization. 
He should give us everything we need to exist for the next 25 years. And, it, and uh, when you stop and consider the... You shouldn't be shocked. You give uh, Latin America $20 billion, and they never fought for this country. They never worked for this country. You send billions of dollars to Poland and to Hungary, their time in this country. They never contributed anything there. This is, what you, this is what you should realize. The greatest contribution to this country was that which was contributed by the black man. If I take the wages, just a moment, if I take the wages of everyone here, individually, it means nothing. But collectively, all of the earning power or wages that you earn in one week would make me wealthy. And if I could collect it for a year, I'd be rich beyond dreams. Now, when you see this, and then you stop and consider the wages that were kept back from, the, from millions of black people, not for one year, but for 310 years, you'll see how this country got so rich so fast. And what made the economy as strong as it is today. And all of that, all of that slave labor that was uh, amassed in unpaid wages uh, is due someone today, and you're not giving us anything when we say that it's time to collect. Abba um, Akinyele, what, what say you when we talk about um, Malcolm's um, continuing legacy and his influence on many formations that developed in, in, in the late 60s and even into the 70s and 80s that were influenced by um, Malcolm X? Well, the thought is there that, particularly in the context of reparation, that unless we're put back into the situation we were in prior to our enslavement as much as possible because that we'll never be regained what we lost. But the real, what, you know, generally call in international law restitution, that we should be put back into the situation that existed prior to the, uh, commission of the internationally wrongful act. And, you know, the primary form of that for us would be the right for us to be self-determining. And that's what uh, Brother Errol was saying earlier, that many nationalists, as Malcolm X, also proposed that we have uh, the ability to govern ourselves once again, whether it was here or within Africa. And so that's, that's just the restating of that principle for us, uh, for us to be able to imagine that we can even – have such a status, I think, is a struggle for our people now. Uh, that is something that many of us cannot imagine that possibly not is for a couple of things. One is, will the United States allow us to do this? Number two, uh, do we have confidence in ourselves that we can govern ourselves, that we can feed ourselves, that we can clothe ourselves, that we can organize a system that works in the benefit of our people. Many of us, that's what we believe in, right? We raise our children that way. We build institutions, uh, and we promote that type of uh, uh, value system. Brother Earl brought up something very clear that was uh, a key component of this is cultural revolution. Can we begin now to begin to uh, build upon these traditions of our people toward cooperativism and uh, cooperation uh, to develop some practices to help transform us from um, a more col uh, colonial type of mentality, you know. So can we develop these type of things? And so 
Malcolm was clear in promoting these type of concepts amongst our people and in um, promoting this concept of self-determination. And so we have to do self-determination in any way we can to kind of build that type of consciousness and that, that selection, that choice. But historically, even though it might not be the majority choice right right now, there's always been this tradition of black nationalism amongst us. Sometimes it's higher and sometimes it's lower. Uh, but given how uh, the settlers, <laughs> the descendants of white settlers mm-hmm. are treating us today, I'm, uh, I'm thinking it's going to be higher again, right? We're thinking yes, given okay. how Trump is behaving, it's given how our children are being killed all over this country, uh, given how uh, the high numbers of us who, who are dying from this disease, and it's very clear that we're being put in harm's way, and the policies of the state, the policies of the federal government will not protect us, so we have to protect ourselves. This thought that we're going to have to depend upon our resources and it'd be best for us to manage our own affairs, I think we should be considered again by our people as a rational choice. And that's what Malcolm was all about. Yes. You know, I, I think about what you were saying in terms of how people don't believe that it's possible. And, and I think about so many tidal ways of how we can maybe you know, um, change that, that perception, you know, like, unfortunately, you know, we have gotten a narrative in America, I call it the, the Negro history narrative, where we, you know, we talk about enslavement, and, and then we go to uh, Reconstruction, and, and then we go to um, Roaring Twenties, and World War One, World War Two, and then Civil Rights Movement, and all of that. But like, as you said, there's actually been a, a line of people, there's always been organizations and individuals all throughout that period from before enslavement through enslavement that have always, and into the present, have always called for separation and, 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 and forming a nation. And so, you know, if people, I think maybe, you know, we, we have to figure out some kind of educational, you know, ways to show people that, look, you know, first of all, we had nations before we were enslaved, right, in Africa. Then we had maroon communities, and we had the Tunis Campbell experiment. We had, you know, the Davis Bend and Mound Bayou, and we've had all of these stories of black exodus. So at every period, there was always people who were successfully um, separating and, and, and doing it successfully, you know, with successful towns and communities. And so, you know, and then we look at, I think we should compare ourselves and look at other nations, you know, like Ghana, Nigeria, Jamaica, like it's really possible, you know, that we could do the same, you know. We have you to also ready? look at our people during this time of Marcus Garvey. You know, mm-hmm, there are some mm-hmm. historians like Bobby Hill who argue that Garvey didn't intend on taking our people back to the continent in mass. But when mm-hmm. he began to use the slogan, back to Africa, in his speeches, you know, black people just resonated with that. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we were being lynched in this, this country at that particular time, right? In the South, we didn't, we could not vote. You know, uh, uh, the economic conditions were horrible. When I talked to my parents, who were born right after the period of time of Marcus Garvey, uh, during the, right before the Depression, uh, when I hear about the conditions they lived in, 
if somebody sent back to Africa, many people were saying, "How? Where can I sign up?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. well, they thought it was a possibility. So again, we have to um, begin to build that, and I think part of it is building the institutions and uh, being able to defend those and be, being able to defend our rights and, and to develop our own capacity and protect uh, institutions that we build and communities that we build. So it's about us building community now and building institutions now that can sustain and protect our communities and protect the values and promote the values of a new type of way of life, you know. Um, and I think even in places like Jackson, Mississippi, and other parts of the South, where we're beginning to take political uh, control in these in these cities to begin to fight for through those public resources that we control uh, for fight for the better ways of life for our people for our people to be able to eat better for our people to have proper health care. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really encouraged by what the sister and people are doing in Evanston, Illinois where they've created a reparations fund. Um, And, you know, in in those particular ways, we know that there are going to be forces to really fight to dismantle those type of reforms that are created in the benefit of our people to have better housing, better health care, and better mental health in those particular communities. So it's about us fighting for what we can achieve right now and then beginning to project uh, a vision of self-determination and a vision of a new value system, things of that nature. I think we need to be concerned about. Well, again, I want to shut up because I know we don't have that much time, and I love hearing my brother Errol. (laughs) So let me shut up. All right. Thank you, brother. All right, brother Errol. So, what, what else do we need to bring in on this conversation of 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 Malcolm X and Black nationalism and reparations? Well, I think it's important. Uh, like brother Akinyele was saying, a key is self determination. But I want to be clear: you can have self determination without being separate. You can have autonomous formations within another state. That's why, what the RNA proposed, the four fundamental consequences of freedom. So, the blacks in the United States who were who were uh, freed from chattel slavery through our through a slave revolution is what freed it during the Civil War. That's how we got our freedom. Truth be told, and I talk about that quite a bit in the book because that's part of the miseducation that uh, we're trained uh, blacks, particularly whites as well, that there wasn't a slave revolution during the Civil War. I can document that. Mm. It builds off Du Bois's arguments in Black Reconstruction more so than the General Strike, and I demonstrate this in the piece. But the um, so it ends chattel slavery. We won that. Uh, neither the Union or the uh, Confederacy had as their objective overturning chattel slavery. We made that a, a war aim. Uh, so after chattel slavery and the 13th Amendment eradicates the 14th Amendment imposed citizenship, as uh, Brother Imario Bedelli has pointed out so much, uh, and, and all the uh, members of the, uh, the found, especially the founding members of the Republic of Alaska. But there are four fundamental consequences of freedom. At that time, between the 13th and 14th Amendment, blacks should have been recorded the option of returning to Africa, establishing a new independent nation among ourselves in the U.S. or another country, or becoming U.S. citizens in a multiracial democracy. The RNA supported all those options for black folks. 
They simply support it for themselves, the establishment of the Republic of New Africa, you see? So that's what's key. So when you say what narratives are, like, get in where you fit in. You see what I'm saying? Self-determination. We're going to choose this option, one group, of, and that's fine. But there are four consequences of freedom, and we'll support those who support any of those four. Who would have thought? How many people thought in 1850 that chattel slavery would be over in uh, 15 years? Chattel slavery, that's important. Who would have thought in 2016 you would have uh, major political parties, at least one, where reparation is actually on the discussion in the 2020 election? Who would have thought that? That reparations is part of the, something that the Democratic candidates are being asked about. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's important to realize we're not refighting a civil war. We're not even fighting against Bull Connor. But to use the strategies that brothers and sisters uh, uh, left us, build on those strategies, not treating them like finished products. So when Malcolm's talking about the battle of the bullet, he don't mean a simple battle. Malcolm's talking about transforming the Electoral College. This is 64. He's talking about eradicating the Senate because they're non-democratic institutions. For those who want to take an electoral route, he got something for that, too. He got something for those who want to take a more revolutionary route. He got something for those who propose an independent black political party. He has something for uh, those who want to support anti-colonial warfare abroad. This is, the, this is the, the richness of Malcolm's black nationalism, you see? So it's important that we study this and not pigeonhole it into one, but I, I have no problem, uh, again, supporting what emanates from any, any of those four. So I think this is key, to see the opportunities and to build on the strategies people like Minister Malcolm and those uh, excellent people he had around him. Brother Akinelli is so right, from Maya Angelou to Alice Wyndham to Vicki Garvin and uh, the, the, the sisters and the brothers that was in the, the OAU. That's why Malcolm set up Muslim Mosque Incorporate and the OAU. It was very forward-looking. And let me say this one more about Malcolm's turn abroad. As you read Haki Madabuti did and Sister uh, Ilyasha, his daughter, such an excellent job on Malcolm X's diary. Look at what Malcolm is saying as he's going through Africa. He sees the Uncle Toms and the neocolonial folks in Africa as well. He's not deceived by that. And I make this argument. If Malcolm could have just lived to see Watts, if he would have saw the Watts revolt, the huge uh, black uprising in August, right after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, it validated what Malcolm said domestically. I think he would have turned his energies forthrightly to the United States. He saw that many of these countries, they, not, they didn't support black liberation. They were just opposed to the United States. The whole Russian bloc, the, the, the communist bloc, Mao Zedong is sitting up saying, uh, I, I mean, he's sitting up saying that uh, uh, most of the races in America are the elites, not the white workers. I don't turn to Mao Zedong to understand uh, U.S. politics. Malcolm understood that China didn't even have a seat in the U.N. Taiwan held that seat at the time. So Malcolm would have saw that the potential for black liberation was right in black folks because we've done it before. In the slavery, that's how we got our freedom. And I think if he could have just lived, if he hadn't been assassinated in, that, in February, if he lived to August and saw Watts and that potential, also the poetry of Watts in your introductory narrative after Ronald Stokes had been killed and Elijah Muhammad would not let him act, the poetry of now going to Watts and organizing right there on the basis of the huge uprising that really sets the tone for the long, hot summers, that would have been so transformative. And that's why it's so important to build on Malcolm, not treat it as a finished product, as all our ancestors. We do, we do them a disservice by treating their work as finished products instead of saying, look, brother, look, sister, you left us a long time ago. This is what I built on your work. Uh, as Brother uh, Akinelli says, building independent institutions, but also – for academics, for intellectuals, just folks in the street, building on that theory and strategy. Because I say this 
all the time, constantly. We're not here for the good graces of white people. We was 4 million in 1860, we 40 million now. How did we do that? We did that because black folks strategized and they organized. We didn't do that from the good graces of white people. But when it comes to theorizing and strategizing, often even the most revolutionary black folks, they offer some white folks to give them the theory that's going to get their liberation. No, I start right there with my ancestors who made a way for me, because that's the only reason I'm here. All right, I say that's a good point to close out on. We're here because of the sacrifices of our ancestors, and and we're also here to create a better world for our children and those yet unborn. And so we're going to, I say, I say, I say, oh, we're going to begin to bring this to a close. Um, you've been listening to Conversation Reparations, uh, installment on Omawali, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, also known as Malcolm X, uh, and, and Reparations, his Earth Day being tomorrow, May 19th. And uh, we've had a special guest, Dr. Errol Henderson. Um, you see how I can yell and get me going science. like that? I put that on here. Uh, Political yeah, science professor at Pennsylvania State <laughs> University and Dr. Akile Moja, uh, African Studies professor at Georgia State University, both scholar activists, and we give thanks for them. And our engineer, Scotty Reed, and you've been listening to Thank you, Conversation Scott. Reparations. You're welcome. Thank you. And we also invite you to our national convention. This year, our national convention will be July 30th through August 1st. It will be a virtual convention uh, in light of this uh, pandemic that we are continuing to experience. And we will, you can find out more information of our national annual convention on our website at incobraonline.org, incobraonline.org. Um, my name is Jumoke Ifechayo. I serve as the Southeast Regional Representative of Incobra and the host of the show. Um, you can reach me directly at reparationsj at gmail.com, reparationsj at gmail.com. If you have comments or concerns about the show, show ideas, uh, you can also reach me at 678-437-7882. And we're going to close out with some more words on Malcolm on reparations, and we can play clip number one. And In possession of this land that you want, and how do you intend to get there? That's a good question. Number one, we, 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 we didn't have any trouble getting to America because the white man... By that I mean we, didn't, we weren't pilgrims, we didn't come on the Mayflower, and we didn't come from Europe, and we didn't come of our own volition. We were brought here in chains at the bottom of the slave ship. And since we didn't pay transportation here, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that the contribution that the black man made in this country, uh, which amounts to 310 years of slave labor, for which we have never been given a dime or a cent, uh, places a burden upon the American white man today for which the government should pay. They, and he says that our people should be allowed to go back to our own homeland, that the government itself should supply us with the transportation and that when we that they should supply us with the machinery and the tools necessary that will enable us to dig the soil and develop our own agricultural system and feed ourselves for the next 20 to 25 years until we are in a position to be completely independent and stand on our own feet and he says that if the government 
does not want a mass exodus of black people from this country back to our own homeland, since we cannot live in peace together, mixed up on this continent, the alternative to that solution is to divide a separate part of this country into which our people can migrate and in which the government, again, should supply us with the machinery and the tools necessary to establish our own independent society and our own independent country. And in this way, it will be uh, creating a solution that the black man himself, our people ourselves, can bring about if we have that uh, capability. And for your clarification, because this has been brought up, some people say, well, why should the government do this? If this government can send billions of dollars to communist countries like Poland and Yugoslavia and to neutralist countries in Asia and Africa who have never made any contribution whatsoever to the sum net worth of this economy and country, and at the same time, this government feels that it is too much to set about something real to solve the problem for the slaves who made a greater contribution even than your people did, why the government doesn't even deserve to continue to function as a government. You mentioned, again just now, land set aside for your people, sir. What land is available that's not already possessed by others? When you came to this country, the land was inhabited by the Indians, and you didn't have any problem then. Reparations to do, so just give me what you 